to be back teaching tonight as we talk about tonight God's righteousness and justice. So God is righteous and just, and we'll talk in a minute why we're combining those together. But as we get started tonight, I want to give you a quote from John Frame. He's a theologian. I think it kind of helps remind us of what we're after in this study. And he says this, we should remind ourselves again that all these divine attributes are just different ways of describing a person. When this person does mighty works in our history and experience, all his attributes come with him. Whatever he does, he simultaneously reveals his benevolence and his authoritative standards. Now, why, do, why are we starting with that? I just want to remind us that this is not an impersonal study. We are studying about the character of God. God has revealed himself to us, and God is knowable. And so we're pursuing this study because we want to know God, not just know facts. We want to know God in a personal way. And to remind ourselves as well, the unity of God. We've talked about that as the very first attribute, the very first thing we talked about, that God is fully unified. And so as we get to some of these attributes that are a little bit more challenging for us, these aren't the ones we're drawn to. Like, it's, it's fun to, to be, be drawn to, like, God is love. But most of us aren't drawn to want to meditate on God's wrath or his justice or things like that. It's good for us to remember God is fully all these attributes all the time. There's not good attributes and bad attributes of God. All these are fully God all of the time. And so tonight we begin with God's righteousness and justice. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And what a great description of God. The rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and that without iniquity, just and upright is he. And that's who we're talking about, friends, tonight. A God who is a rock, who is perfect in all of his works, who is just in all that he does. He's faithful, no iniquity. He is just and upright. And he has revealed himself to us, and we get to study about him. So turn the page to page two as we begin to think about God's righteousness and justice. I'm going to start with this quote here from J.I. Packer as we begin tonight, just as we start some of these, again, maybe the right word is tougher attributes for us. He says this, Do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Speak to them of God as a father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite all our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You're on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. But there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. Friends, again, let me just remind us, all of the attributes of God are good. His righteousness, His justice, His wrath, His jealousy, all those are good because it's part of God's good character. It's, again, it's not the stuff we tend to be drawn to. And so over these next several weeks, we're going to start tackling some of these, t- again, I call them tougher attributes. We're going to try to mix it up because if you look at the way most theologies group these together, they start with, with holiness, what we did two weeks ago, and then they move this week into justice and righteousness, then next week into wrath, and then into jealousy. You know, when I first put this schedule together, I put those four in a row and I went, that's not going to be a fun month. And so we decided to intersperse them because God's fully all these attributes all the time. And so we did first God's holiness, then love, now we're going to talk about his righteousness, and then we're going to talk about his mercy and patience next week. Then we're going to come back and talk about his jealousy. Then we're going to talk about his grace, and we're going to come back and talk about his wrath. So we're going to kind of mix these up because God is fully all these things. And instead of having a, just a heavy month, we're going to mix in the ones we like and the ones that are still good, but not the ones we are drawn to as much. So tonight, God's righteousness and justice. Why are we considering these together? Well, when you, when you think about these two terms, I want to hear from you first. What comes to mind? When you think first of righteousness... Because our minds associate these as different concepts. When you think of righteousness, what comes to mind? Holiness, yeah. Holiness, perfection. What else comes to mind when you think of righteousness? Anything else come to mind with righteousness? Right living. Right living. 
without sin. Yeah. And so we kind of think on those levels, like, you know, God is holy, and when we think of our own righteousness, you know, he's called us to be holy. You know, we, we think of those terms. When we think of justice, what comes to mind? What's that? Fairness. Fairness, yeah. What else comes to mind with justice? It's just. Yeah, and I don't know about you. When I think righteousness, I think more on a personal level. When I think of justice, I think more of an interpersonal societal level. And I don't know if your brain works like mine on that. And so we tend to, at least in, our, in my conversation, I'd almost distinguish those. Things that are righteous are things that are dealing with, if we're describing God, His holiness. If we're describing us, what, how He's called us to live. If I think of justice, I'm thinking of God's doing what's right. When I think of justice, I'm thinking of fighting for what's right on behalf of others. And so we often separate them, but we're not going to separate them tonight for two reasons. Number one, we're not going to separate them for language reasons, linguistic reasons. Because in the Old Testament, it's where you see a lot of the discussion of righteousness and justice. And there's one Hebrew root word that both words come from. And so there's very little distinction in the Hebrew between the words that we would call righteousness and justice. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that gets translated a lot of times in our Bibles as righteous also gets translated as accurate, fair, just, just cause, justice, righteous, righteously, righteousness, rightly, vindication, what is right. And so the same word can be translated as justice or righteousness. There's not the hard and fast distinction that we have in English between these concepts in the Hebrew Old Testament. Likewise, in the Greek New Testament, the concept you see there is primarily righteousness. The word justice only appears a few times in relation to God. And so there, the word righteousness is the main idea, but it's the same idea. So language-wise, there's not a distinction in the Greek and Hebrew that would really necessitate us making these two different words. But fundamentally, why we're going to put them together tonight beyond that is I really think, second of all, they're inseparable on this. To do what is right is to do what is just. And to do what is just is to do what is right, right? You know, they're really the same idea. You can't have something that's just and not right or right and not just. They're really, we're talking one and the same thing here. So you'll see they're just kind of different terms that really get to the root of the same issue on this. And you'll see this come out in the attempts to define God's righteousness and justice. Here's just several people we quote from a good bit as we seek to get our minds around what is God's righteousness and justice. First, A.W. Tozer. He says, justice is not something that God has. Justice is something that God is. God is love, and just as God is love, God is justice. And that's a good place for us to start, because I think when I think justice, I'm thinking about interactions with other people, more action-based, and it is that, but this is the character and nature of God. This is, like we said, with all the attributes, these are not external to God. It's not like here's God in a circle, and all the attributes are dots around it. He's fully all the attributes all the time. So justice, righteousness, is at the core of his being. John Frame helps us think about it from a different angle. He says, God's righteousness is a form of his goodness, God's righteousness is the form or structure of his goodness. And his goodness is the concrete, active embodiment of his righteousness. He's getting a little bit philosophical for us here, but he's basically just saying you can't distinguish even God's goodness from his righteousness. This is all fully who God is all the time. And so when we talk about his righteousness here, his justice is the expression of his goodness. John Frame also says this. I give you a second quote from him. He says, Scripture often presents God's righteousness, as we shall see, not merely as an authoritative standard, but also as an active power bringing salvation. That's important. So when we think of justice, righteousness, we think of doing what's right. But Scripture takes it one step further. It's God's active work to bring salvation. Righteousness conveys with it God working on behalf of his people. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, said, Righteousness is an attribute by virtue of which God justifies the righteous. So he takes it from the angle of God's work towards believers And then Wayne Grudem, one of my favorites, says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard 
of what is right. And I feel like Grudem loves that phrase. I feel like every, defin- every definition has something about God as a standard, and I think Grudem's right on with that. So let's try to put this together. Here is my very long-winded, feeble attempt to define it ourselves of what is God's righteousness and justice, okay? So this is my definition of it. God's righteousness and justice refer to God's holy and perfect character and the holy and perfect works that then flow from his character. So again, when we think of it, we're often thinking of what flows out of God, his actions, but it starts with the core of who he is. So it's his, his character and then his actions that flow from that. Go in the next sentence. His righteousness and justice mean that, he, that all he says and all he does is right. It also means that his truth will certainly prevail and that every wrong will one day be punished. Yet, salvation certainly will come to his people. And that's kind of long-winded, but there's a lot that gets tied in this attribute. It's God's character. It's his actions. It's all that he says he does. And it does mean that he is just, that every sin will be punished. We'll see that in a minute. But that yet we as his believers will be spared from that punishment. All that is conveyed in this concept of righteousness and justice. So I want us to see it in Scripture, and then we'll kind of unpack that definition and look at more of what this means. So turn the page to page 3. There's lots of places in the Scripture you'll see justice and God is just, God is righteous. And so here they are. You see, again, the Old Testament is where you see a lot of this displayed for us. So you see it in both Old and New Testaments. Start back in Genesis 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, this is Abraham talking to the Lord. Abraham is talking to the Lord about the coming destruction of, Sod- of Sodom there. And he's basically asking God this question. He's saying, God, you're the judge of all the earth. Will you not do what is just? And it's in the context of God, will you really destroy the righteous with the wicked? when you bring judgment on Sodom. And so that's what's going on there, and you see Abraham declaring that God is just. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and out without iniquity, just and upright is he. So how many of his works and ways are justice? All of them, friends. Everything that God does is just. And I know we might affirm that, but when you start listening to the way believers talk, when trials hit, I'm not saying us in this group, but when you just think of broader context of the culture, when, the way believers talk when trials hit, sometimes they act like God is not just. But all of his ways are just. And we don't understand them, but everything God does is just. Friends, is there anything that God can't do? Well, he can't do anything that's unjust. He can't sin. He can't do anything that would violate his character. So when you say God can do anything, well, yeah, to an extent, but he can't do anything that will violate his character. So God cannot do anything unjust by virtue of his very nature and character. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So you see more of the external actions coming out of his character. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And I just love that whole string of descriptions. If you're discouraged about things in life, I'd encourage you to meditate on that first part of that verse. He's the God of God, Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. That's just a really incredible description of who we serve and who we worship. First Samuel chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Now, this is the context. This is Samuel speaking to people of Israel as a prophet here. He's reminding them of what God has done. And notice how he describes them or describes God to the people. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord they perform for you and for your fathers. How many of the righteous deeds? All. Was everything that God did for Israel fun? No, but it was all righteous. It was all 
just. It was all flowing out of his goodness and his character because God is good, God is righteous, God is just in all of these things. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 8. This is remembering God's promise to Abraham. And it simply says this, You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And friends, if you're in a place where life is tough and you're discouraged, I'd encourage you to find some of the promises of the Word of God to meditate on and realize this truth. God, you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. God will never, ever break his promise. That's an incredible truth for us to hold on to in the tough times. Psalm chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Again, when people kind of recoil away from the idea of God being a judge, I mean, it's so clear. He sits enthroned. Get the image in our head of him on the throne as a judge. He has established his throne for justice. That's what's going to come. Justice will be done, though in this world right now, we see a lot of injustice still happen. Friends, the day is coming that all wrongs will be made right that he has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness, and he judges the people with uprightness. Or Psalm 92, 15, again, this beautiful image. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I'll talk more about that in your, in your groups tonight, but how this truth changes how we face difficulties. God is our rock. And notice the connection between understanding him as our rock and understanding the fact that he is righteous in all he does. Psalm 97, Psalm 97, 2 here, another beautiful picture for us. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You can get the imagery there. His throne's foundation is righteousness, is justice. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Again, friends, God is revealing himself in what God says about himself. This isn't someone describing God. This is God describing himself, his revelation to us. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. This is not just he does these things. That next phrase is amazing. For in these things I delight. Think about God is not, though he's sovereign in control, he's not impassive. He doesn't, have, he doesn't lack emotions. God delights in being a God of justice and a God of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we'll get to it in a minute, but you see attention here because for some, God's justice and righteousness is terrifying because they're going to have to come face to face with their creator about their sin. But for those of us who have had our sins forgiven, we can long for seeing the judge face to face with no fear here because we've loved his appearing. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will judge. Notice who he's judging here. His people. Friends, God is the judge over all things, including over his people. And it shows us how he views sin in this as well. And then finally, Revelation chapter 16. And then in the Bible... The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For you have shed the blood, for, sorry, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just 
are your judgments. This is the punishment that's coming for those who've been persecuting God's people in the last days here. And his judgments against them, his justice is right and good in that. So turn the page to page four. Let's think about some of these aspects of what it means for God to be righteous and just. Now, first of all, we've already alluded to this in the scriptures we've looked at. First of all, God loves righteousness and justice. Again, this is not just, God is not some being with no emotion or feelings. We see God rejoice. We see God love. I hope you've seen that through these attributes. God has emotions and feelings in all these things. And God loves righteousness. Here, the Father is describing the Son. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's describing that Jesus loves righteousness. Jesus hates wickedness. And we see this clearly in the book of Hebrews. In the quote J.I. Packer, he says, The modern idea that a judge should be cold and dispassionate has no place in the Bible. The biblical judge is expected to love justice and play fair, sorry, and fair play and to loathe all ill treatment of one person by another. An unjust judge, one who has no interest in seeing right triumph over wrong, is by biblical standard a monstrosity. The Bible leaves us in no doubt that God loves righteousness and hates iniquity and that the ideal of a judge wholly identified with what is good and right is perfectly fulfilled in him. God is the perfect example for us of what a good judge should be because it's not just he's doing what's right. He loves, he delights, he rejoices in righteousness, in his own righteousness, in the righteousness going forth in the world and injustice being done as well. And friends, let me just remind us that gives us great hope when we face injustices in our life because God is a God who loves justice, who loves righteousness, and he is a God who will one day make it right. And so let me just encourage you, if you're at a place where you've dealt with injustice in your life and you've had a hard time with that, Again, I commend to you a book I've commended to many others, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's in the hall out there. And he talks about in there the fact that God not only is the sovereign God who is a judge, and friends, if we don't have hope of future judgment and wrongs be made right, then life is hopeless when we face trials and injustices. But God is a just judge who will make all the wrongs right one day because he loves justice. But beyond that, he's a God who himself coming as Jesus in human flesh has experienced injustice himself, and he feels the pain of it and empathizes with you. And so when you are in a place where you're facing trials, when you're facing injustices in your life, God empathizes with you because he's a God who has suffered himself. But he's also a God who's sovereign on the throne who will one day make all these wrongs you've experienced right because he is on the throne and he is the judge. And friends, that gives us such hope in the midst of injustice that happens in our own life. Number two, God must punish sin. God would be unjust and not righteous to leave even one sin unpunished friends we have to get our minds around that that god cannot just overlook a sin friends overlook one sin in your life or mine or anyone's life he would cease to be perfectly just he can't be like oh man i really like that guy and so i know he lied that one time but it'll be okay i'll let him buy like no he can't do that he'd be compromising his justice he's not just like a kind grandfather in a chair who's going to watch the grandkids go by and let stuff pass he knows isn't right he is a just judge, and he cannot tolerate even with the smallest sin going unpunished. We see that in multiple places throughout Scripture, but Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We'll talk about this in two weeks. The wrath of God, and friends, again, that's the concept that our culture wants to run from. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much ungodliness? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, that is a terrifying verse. 
the, God's wrath, which we'll get to here in a few weeks, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not just the worst stuff. Again, I think sometimes we think of his wrath being reserved for the, the Hitlers and the awful people. It was against all ungodliness. His wrath is poured out against everyone who dishonors their parents, everyone who lies, everyone who thinks impure thoughts. I mean, you go through the list of the potential sins we commit. Every single one of those, God's wrath is poured out against. God is a holy God, and he must punish sin. That leaves this guy named Anselm in the next quote. Anselm was one of the early church fathers, and he wrote this question. It's translated into Old English for us, unfortunately. How dost thou spare the wicked if thou art just, supremely just? that leads to our next point there. How can a just God who has to punish every sin, how can he spare the wicked? How is there hope for any of us? And we've been seeing this as we go through the Gospel of John, so this is not new, I don't think, for any of you. But number three, God will certainly save his people. Let me just remind us what we tackled a few weeks ago. God never forgives sin. I know that sounds heretical at first, but God never forgives sin. God forgives sinners, but he never forgives the sin. He can't forgive the sin. He's just. The sin has to be punished. And either the sinner bears the punishment or there has to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect one who has never sinned, who gladly takes the punishment from that sinner who deserves it and puts it upon himself. And that's Jesus, friend. No sin goes unpunished. Every simple thought that we've ever thought will be punished, or has been punished, I should say. Every wrong heart motive we've ever had has been punished. All that is done, either we're going to bear the punishment for all eternity because we offended God so much, or Christ bore it on Calvary. There is no forgiveness of sin, but there is forgiveness of the sinner because that sin has been taken from the, the sinner and put on the righteous one, the lamb, who takes our place. That's what Romans chapter 3 tells us about here. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And friends, what an incredible phrase right there, the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. There's, when he forgives us, there's no compromise to his justice. There's no overlooking sin. Rather, it's all taken and put upon Christ as our propitiation, as our sacrifice, as our substitute who takes it on our behalf. And so God's righteousness is upheld, and his justice is upheld, and yet we can be forgiven. Friends, God's justice, if there had never been a cross, would be terrifying for us because we would face his holiness with nowhere to turn and no one to justify us on this. Again, to quote John Frame, a theologian, he says, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus is the basis of our righteousness. And when God clears our guilt for Jesus' sake, he's acting justly. Through Christ, God is able both to justify the ungodly us and to defend himself against any charge of injustice. And again, let me just, the phrase that Frame uses, we, we talked about Sunday mornings, we started think, this series on biblical community. It says, God clears our guilt for Jesus' sake. And we have to keep in mind the big picture of the Bible here, friends. We're not the main character. It's not primary about us. God didn't save us primarily for us. He saved us for Jesus' sake. He saved us for his glory, his sake, because he's done something bigger than our story. Now, we're thankful he saved us. We're thankful for all he's done for us. But friends, we're not the main character. He 
is. And then the hope for us because he is just and the justifier, both 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not that he's just faithful and merciful. He's still just because he has taken our sin and had it paid for without having to punish us for it. So he maintains his righteousness. Turn the page, number five. To number four, I mean. All God says and requires of us is righteous. Again, everything comes out of his nature. He's holy and righteous. He's just and righteous. Therefore, this will be as well. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. Or Isaiah 45, 19. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So with that in view, friends, that again begs the question for us that we need to ask of ourselves in light of these verses. We can say we believe that everything God says is right. All of God's standards for us are right. All of his laws for us, all of how he wants us to live are right. We can affirm that. But then the question for us, do we act that way? Do we act like we really believe that everything in God's word to us about what he requires of us, to love our enemies, to honor our father and mother, to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love, to live in community, all the stuff we talked about Sunday that can really stretch us and that will stretch us in the weeks to come. Do we really believe that that's his holy, righteous, good plan for us. So do we joyfully submit to his commands? Do we joyfully obey his commands? Do we joyfully trust his providence even when it doesn't make sense to us? And so we, it's, again, it's one thing to say, well, I believe everything God's word says is true. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. But do we have joy in our heart and embrace it and believe it? Number five, then, God is the final standard of what is right. Again, Wayne Grudem, I feel like, brings this up every time we have a definition, but it's a good reminder for us. Whatever is right it's whatever conforms to God's character. There is no standard outside of God himself by which he is judged or measured. Friends, we don't say, okay, this is what's right. God fits that definition, therefore God is righteous and just. No, we look at God and say that is righteousness and justice. Now that becomes a definition for everything else. God himself, his character is a standard by which everything else is measured, not the other way around. Again, John Frame says God acts according to a perfect internal standard, of right and wrong. It's an internal standard. God's not looking at the, some external standard of what the United Nations said is good and right and goes, okay, I guess I can conform to that. God himself is the standard. It's an internal standard, and we need to measure ourselves to that. Likewise, A.W. Tozer says, we must remember that justice is not something outside of God to which God must conform. Nothing ever requires God to do anything. Just pause there and think about it. Nothing requires God to do anything. God is free to do, to do whatever God wants to do said, if you have a God who is required to do anything, then you have a weak God who has to bow his neck to some yoke and yield himself to pressure from the outside. Then justice is bigger than God. But that is to think wrongly. And friend, justice is not bigger than God because God is justice. And God is just. And he shows us what justice and righteousness looks like. And that leads to a very profound implication for us, which can be hard for us. Number six, we are not given the right to judge, to judge God's actions. That's not the, he's not entrusted us with the right to judge what he does. He is perfect. He is good in all he does. Every action, every word that he does, he declares to be just, right, and good. And we're not given the prerogative to say, God, I don't think that's just. I don't think that's good. And to, and to question his justice on that. You see this in the book of Job. Job chapter 40, verse 2. This is God speaking to Job, to some of Job's questions. And he says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He's calling Job the fault finder here. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And it silences Job. In the next few verses that follow, Job just basically goes quiet on this. 
And then he picks back, and then God speaks again to him in verses 6 and 8 of that same chapter. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And the answer is obviously no. At this point, when a voice is speaking to you out of the whirlwind and has already declared, I am the Almighty, do you dare argue with me? And then he says to him again from the whirlwind, I will question you now. You've been questioning me. Let me let's get this in the right line. I question you. You don't question me. And he says to Job, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that, that you may be right? Friends, that needs to sink in in my heart and all of our hearts that God is the one who is right. He questions us, not us him. And in chapter, Romans chapter 9 on this one, this is in light of some of the hard teachings of the Bible about why God does what he does in terms of election. Romans chapter 9. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So let me just pause there. At that point, people are kind of like, oh, this doesn't sound comfortable to me. So what does Paul say in light of this truth? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? So Paul, Paul expects the objection that we're going to give to this question that God is sovereign God is going to do what God wants to do. And then where's the answer there? But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump? Sorry, that should be one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Friends, I've watched my kids make Play-Doh. If you walk in my office just down the hall, you'll see Play-Doh creations all over my shelves, little tractors and little street sweepers and all sorts of stuff that they, they've invented with that. Never once in all of the years of watching my boys play with Play-Doh have they made something in the Play-Doh been like, I don't want to look like this. This doesn't look like a tractor. Come on, put a little top. You know, no, Play-Doh doesn't talk back. It's not supposed to. It's Play-Doh. The creator has the right to create with the Play-Doh whatever the creator wants. And God is the one who molds the world and us as he wants. But there's a big but weight on this one. However, this truth does not mean that we cannot bring God our questions and our doubts, friends. There's a difference in us judging God and honestly talking to God about our questions and doubts. It's not wrong to go to God and say, God, I really don't understand what's going on here. God, I'm, I'm struggling right now. I'm struggling to believe you're good. You know, it's okay, friends, for us to bring our questions and doubts to God. Read the book of Psalms. King David, a man after God's own heart, brought his questions and doubts over and over again to the Lord. But the difference is, there's a difference in judging God's actions and saying, God, you're wrong. God, this is not right. And going to God saying, God, I trust you're good, but this makes no sense to me. Help my unbelief. There's a whole different attitude and posture that goes to God with honest questions and honest doubts, which I believe biblically we're supposed to do. Friends, it's not wrong when you have doubts to raise those to the Lord. It is wrong, though, to judge God and condemn him and, and judge him for doing wrong things. So just make that distinction that we can bring God our questions and doubts, but we do so with an attitude of humility as a child going to his father saying, I trust you, but I'm having trouble. Numbers, turn the page to page 6. Let me remind us, this is a communicable attribute of God. Two ways I believe this is communicable. Number one, we share in Christ's righteousness. We already saw that in this passage in Romans 3, but 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us of that. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, again, let, let this sink in, the wonder of this. I think sometimes when we've heard the gospel our whole lives, we lose the wonder of this. When Christ died... It's not just that he took, all, he took all of my sin off of me and put it on Jesus so I don't have to have punishment. But in that same transaction, God took all of Christ's righteousness and put it on me. He clothed us with Christ's righteousness. And when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us, friends. We have been imparted Christ's righteousness. It's great that our sin was removed. That's wonderful. But we've got something even better than having our sin removed. We have Christ's righteousness put on us. 
And so in one sense, this is communicable at the point of salvation that we have been given the gift of Christ righteousness so we can then boldly approach the throne of grace because when the Father looks at us, no matter what sin I've committed today, when he looks at me, he sees Jesus walking into the throne room. He sees Christ's righteousness, and therefore we have access to him. But not only is that the way it's communicable, there's a second way, and that is God calls us to fight for righteousness and justice. And there's two ways, and I don't distinguish this on your handout. We're called to fight for righteousness and justice in our own lives first. We're called to strive for holiness. He's declared us to be righteous. That's who we are positionally before him. Now, practically, he calls us not in our own strength, but in his strength and by his grace to live out who he's declared us to be, clothing Christ's righteousness. So we strive for righteousness in our own life, but we also strive for righteousness and justice in the world, in society. I think we see that in both those ways in these two texts. Proverbs 21, uh, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than a sacrifice. Isn't that incredible? To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Or in Isaiah chapter 1 here, God is rejecting the worship of his people because of their sin. And here's what he tells them when he rejects their worship. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead to the widow's cause. And he calls us to do that. So, friends, it's a both and. We pursue personal holiness by his grace. We pursue trying to see injustice in the world made right. And it's easy to get out of balance, isn't it? Some people are really passionate about injustice in the world, but they don't tackle holiness in their own heart. Some people are really passionate about killing sin in their life, but they never translate that to others. I can't tell you how many guys over the years have come into my office, and as I get to know them, they're guys who are really passionate about, like, ending slavery. That's kind of, like, one of the big, you know, things that at least our college, younger, millennial generation is really passionate about, is ending slavery in the world. That's a great cause for them to be fighting for. Because I get to know these guys and talk about, yeah, so we're on their slavery, and we need to have these events on campus and do all this stuff. And then I just ask them the, the straightforward question, do you look at pornography? And their heads kind of fall. Well, yeah, but we need to talk about injustice in the world. I'm like, no, no. This is a both and. It's, 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 why are you ignoring your sin that's actually driving that industry when in reality you're feeling that? It's a, and so, friends, it's a both and. My point is we need to make sure that we're not only just standing up for injustice in the world, but we're, we're fighting for holiness by God's grace in our life. Or if we're one who's prone to ignore injustice in the world and just deal with self, we need to get our eyes off self as well and focus on that. It's a both and, not an either or. In light of all this, I believe there's four challenges that this attribute calls us to. As we think about God's justice, God's righteousness, I think there's four things that need to happen in our lives. Number one, it calls us to trust God. It calls us to trust him. Romans chapter 11, in the midst of Paul wrestling with these incredibly deep truths about how big and sovereign and just God is, he says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, I know that verse doesn't say to trust God, but his wisdom, his knowledge, is de- the depth of the riches of that. It's far beyond anything we can fathom or imagine. How unsearchable are his judgments. Friends, life doesn't have to make sense to us. It does to God. Because he sees the big picture. He sees the whole tapestry. He knows what he's up to. And so we can trust him because he's a righteous and just judge. Second of all, it calls us not only trust, it calls us to be thankful. It's a great quote from Wayne Grudem from a systematic theology. It should be a cause for thanksgiving and gratitude. We realize that righteousness and omnipotence, remember that's all power, are both possessed by God. If he were a God of perfect righteousness without power to carry out that righteousness, he would not be worthy of worship. We'd have no guarantee that justice will ultimately prevail in the universe. But if he were a God of unlimited power, yet without righteousness in his character, how unthinkably horrible the universe would be. 
There would be unrighteousness at the center of all existence. And there would be nothing anyone could do to change it. Existence would become meaningless. And we'd be driven to the most utter despair. We ought therefore continually to thank and praise God for who he is. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. I just encourage you to ponder that. Think about all these attributes together, that if God was not all-powerful, he wouldn't be God. But God, if it wasn't a God of justice, friends, we have no hope that all the wrongs of the world would one day be made right. Number three, it calls us to holiness as well, what we were just talking about and fighting for justice and righteousness in our own hearts as well. First Peter chapter 1. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Know that you, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, <coughs> but with the precious blood of Christ. <coughs> Where is any of us who call on our, on our Father who judges impartially we're to conduct ourselves with fear. We've been ransomed. He's, been, he's bought us. He's changed us. And so we need to live like we are a changed people. The number four, we'll talk about this more in your small groups. It calls us to take the pursuit of God seriously. If we really believe that God is a God of justice and righteousness, will it not change how we approach him, even on a daily basis? So turn the page to page seven here. Here's our discussion questions I want you to start with tonight in your group. Number one, Anselm ponders how God could spare the wicked if he is supremely just. We, we read that quote in Old English earlier. And reflecting on that question, A.W. Tozer writes this. And this is a great quote from Tozer. He says, We don't worry about this question much because in this day we have cheapened salvation. We have cheapened our concept of God to a place where we expect to stumble up to the pearly gate and bang on the door and say, Well, God, I'm here! And have God take us in. We better get the old theologian's question figured out lest we presumptuously go to the gate of heaven and be turned away. Again, that quote was, how can God spare the wicked if he's just? We need to ponder that one. So do you agree with Tozer's quote? Have we cheapened salvation? Do we kind of have this expectation where we're going to bang on the pearly gates? I'm here, God, let me in. Do you agree with Tozer's assessment? And, how, and if so, how has the concept of God been cheapened today? Just as you think about Christianity and the world. Number two, how should God's justice and righteousness lead us to take our pursuit of God seriously? And that's kind of the last challenge for you on the previous page. I didn't tell you how because I want you to wrestle that. How should understanding God's righteousness and justice lead us to take our pursuit of God seriously? And how should it help us in our own striving for holiness? Number three, how would thinking more about God's righteousness and justice help us face trials and difficulties in this life of confidence and joy? Friends, this is one of the things I don't think we think about a whole lot, but I'm convinced that pondering God's justice will help us endure trials and suffering and injustice that we face in this world now. So think about that. How will thinking more about God's righteousness and justice help us face trials and difficulties in our life? Number four, how should understanding this attribute influence how we pray? Number five, how should understanding this attribute guide our response to injustices in the world around us? We're confronted with injustice, whether it's here in Montgomery, whether it's over on the other side of the world. What is our response as believers in light of this attribute? And then what songs do you know that describe God's righteousness and justice? Maybe one more challenge to think about songs that describe this one than some. Dave had the easier one trying to think about songs that describe God's love. You can probably just turn on K-Love on the radio, and the next 20 songs that come on will probably describe it, but you may not find the next 20 songs about God's justice and righteousness. So kind of rack your brains on that one. So let's divide up into groups. Let's get a group with Dave back here. Steve, let's get a group going with you. CJ, if you want to do a group back there, and then I'll do a group up here in the front right. So let's, do, let's divide into four, four groups back there. So Dave over here. Steve